Hello everyone, and welcome to the Stephen King Cast, one man musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication. This week, however, I turn my attention to the movies, as I examine 1998's adaptation from different seasons' classic novella, Apt Pupil. So, uh, last week I, I reviewed Apt Pupil, the novella. Um, so feel free, if this is your first time tuning in, uh, well, welcome. Uh, and if you have read the novella and you're a fan of the novella, I strongly suggest you know you, you just go out and you check the review um, because I, I think that it's, it's, it's a disturbing story written by King. It's very, very pessimistic from an author that I, I tend to um, categorize as optimistic. But, um, but nonetheless, it is, it's a very tight thriller about power and control um, and, and there's a lot going on it, there's not a lot of pages to it but it's it's definitely jam-packed with a lot the movie um, is a very close adaptation but ultimately I think that it, it doesn't reach the the highs of Stephen King's novella now what I'm gonna do I'm going to get into the movie review um, which if you've listened to my movie reviews um, before with the exception of the shining movie review uh, the Stephen King adaptations tend to just kind of be like a running commentary and my thoughts from scene by scene. I'm going to uh, take some Wikipedia pieces and intersperse them with the, the review here and there, um, just so you know. So, Apt Pupil the Movie uh, came out in 1998. It is directed by Brian Singer. For those of you who, who don't know, Brian Singer is probably at this point most famously known for the X-Men movies. Um, at the time of the Apt Pupil uh, film, he was the hot young director who had just um, come off The Usual Suspects, which was 96, 97, it, and it was the like the movie that, that people talked about it. It was one of those movies that, you know, kind of put Kevin Spacey, um, you know, into the stratosphere, and that was the the second of the the one two three punch, I guess, of Kevin Spacey, which the the first being Seven, then Usual Suspects, then American Beauty, and it was just boom, boom, boom. You know, here's this guy, and uh, you know, a lot of that had to do with uh, his his turn in in Brian Singer's The Usual Suspects. So he was the the next you know big thing you know the up and comer and uh, you know he decided to to make this um, adaptation from Stephen King's novella. So here we go. I'm just gonna kind of get into it here. So immediately we meet Todd, um, our character Todd, played by Brad Renfro, um, who just uh, I don't know. I mean I think that he does a very serviceable job. I think he does a really good job, and I know that he has been. Um, you know, uh, he was awarded um, f- some recognition from this movie, but what Todd is in the novella, he's the all-American boy, and um, Brad Renfro does not come across as the all-American boy to me. Uh, and when we first meet him in the novella, riding his bike towards uh, Denker's house, we don't know the darkness within yet. You know, we just we tend to think perfect suburbs boy on bike you know all is great right but off the bat here there seems to be just something off about him you know he's in class at the moment he's not on his bike we'll get to that in a minute but he's he's in class and he's just staring just 
dead-eyed um, at the board. And immediately, you get a sense that he has this unhealthy interest in the Holocaust. And that's Brian Singer's way of pointing us in the direction of where the movie's going, whereas Stephen King played against it. You know, he, he introduced what we thought was All-American and then showed, actually, guys, this is anti-American. You know, American. This is this is Nazism here. This is this is uh, you know a sadistic, perverted, uh, you know monster of a human being that's hiding within our own image. But here we have Todd, and we sense that despite everything he has going for him, something something's off about him. It's just a different, um, different way to go about it. Uh, a different focus. I'd prefer King's focus rather than 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 uh, Brian Singer's focus in this. And then our credits roll over photographs of the Holocaust to get a sense of our main character's interest. And when Brian Singer starts the movie in full, we learn that's 1984. Todd is on a bus, and he manages to sit on a bus just as creepily as he sits in class. Just like just super intense, kind of dead-eyed little slack jawed just something's wrong with him he's just if i was in class i wouldn't sit next to him if i was on the bus i'd steer clear um so he he does a lot of good uh creepy sitting in this movie and then after a very very brief scene in school where todd plays dawson to joshua jackson's pacey we see todd riding his bike through the streets much like in the in the novella then into a tunnel which shoots him in front of Ian McKellen's house, a birth canal, if you will, that tunnel, into his new life as a monster. Todd rings the doorbell. Dusander answers, or Dusander. I, I was pronouncing it uh, incorrectly all of last uh, last episode, and I probably will continue to do so in this episode. But uh, Dusander answers, and Todd begins rattling off dates and locations. Um, whereas in the book, on it, this scene with Todd on the doorstep, Todd came across as aggravatingly smug, right? Um, but here, while on the doorstep, Brad Renfro's Todd is hesitant. As he lists the date and locations, he ends each sentence in a question mark. He's not quite sure what to do with the Nazi now that he's actually met him. Once he gets into the house, Renfro does a great job at bringing out the Todd that we knew so well from the novella, playing up Todd's age, while growing increasingly arrogant and short-tempered. And on a side note, uh, I don't know if anyone else has seen this, but I just I thought that Brad Renfro the entire time looked just like Kristen Stewart. After Todd admits to having 14 matches of fingerprints, which was a um, that was an inclusion of Brian Singer's that I thought was a good touch on his part. Uh, Dusander goes to the phone claiming that Todd's parents will beat him. Todd states that his parents don't believe in violence. Todd's current parents don't believe in violence but his new parent certainly does and will bring out the violence within him ian mckellen hangs up the phone and gives a feeble excuse knowing it's over so many of emotions vibrate in his performance um weariness frustration a little bit of relief now that it's over it is an incredible performance certainly one that we expect by now when we think of ian mckellen so nuanced powerful memorable contrasted with Brad Renfro, who might give the worst performance of an actor pretending to drink out of a cup that I've ever seen on film. Uh, I mean, Renfro does a good job in this movie, but not in this particular scene, not against Ian McKellen. Uh, just, just watch it. Watch him try and drink out of a cup. It just doesn't work. Uh, one month later, 
Todd has begun drawing swastikas on his returned classwork. He is deep into his relationship with Dusander, hanging on to his every word. Now, McKellen, in these scenes in the kitchen with the two of them, he's just riveting. Everything about Ian McKellen is is incredible. And I love that, and I'm just so grateful that um, Brian Singer cast him in this movie as Dusander uh, because he then would, of course, go on to uh, cast him as Magneto in the X-Men movies. And without Ian McKellen, I, I know that, of course, you know, everyone you know says that without Hugh Jackman, but... You know, it, it's it's. I, I would say it's the Trinity without Hugh Jackman, without Patrick Stewart, and without Ian McKellen, the X Men movies wouldn't have taken off. And I, I think that if it weren't for the X Men movies, we wouldn't have gotten the the next generation of superhero movies. You know, which which helped change cinema, and you know, really did a, a lot in in changing um, you know pop culture and and acceptance among. Um, you know what had before been class classified as as nerds, so to speak. Um, you know, in in schools and in life, it's now an accepted interest, right? And a lot of that had to do with Ian McKellen. So the the partnership between Brian Singer and Ian McKellen begins here. I'm so grateful for it, and Brian Singer is really able to draw a lot out of of Ian McKellen, who just wants to give and give and give as an actor, um, and he's great. You know, and he's riveting, riveting while he just talks. You know, he's just sitting at a table, monologuing, taking puffs of his cigarette, pouring and gulping his drink, subtly revealing his yellowed teeth, and ruminating on um, on the past in a way that's reminiscent of, of Robert Shaw's monologue from Jaws, which I, I, I think that it, it has to be intentional because Brian Singer is, is famously... A, a huge fan of Jaws. I mean, he even uh, named his production company Bad Hat Harry after that famous line um, from the movie. So I, I just I think that that's intentional. Um, and again, just a great performance. And you know, from these conversations uh, between Todd and Dusander, uh, Todd's descent comes rather quick. You know, I mean, we see right away that he's affected, you know, by this new relationship through his dreams which result with him waking up just thoroughly drenched with sweat. Um, you know, we, we have the dinner scene where Ian McKellen charms Todd's family, completely including his grandparents. And then Todd's father is played uh, by Brian Singer's regular, Bruce Davidson, you know, who in the movie symbolizes Todd's privileged lifestyle. Soon after, uh, Singer includes a shower scene in order to show Todd's growing insanity, delving into a fugue state while imagining the showers in the camps. So he's he's really diso- you know disconnecting from from reality here. And then we're given uh, probably the most famous scene, I would say, from both the novella and the movie, and that's the uh, the scene in which Todd forces Dusander to wear that SS uniform. And as disturbing as it is, it, I it in in the in the in the note in the movie, and it is disturbing. I'm gonna talk about it a little bit more um, in a Wikipedia section, but um, it I don't think that it can measure up to the book's connotations of of sexual abuse. Wikipedia, I'm gonna get into it a little bit. Um, I'm gonna rely on Wikipedia because I I couldn't wrap my own thesis around it really. You know, I mean, I I could kind of pull at the edges, but I, I can't really put together my own argument here, but um, 
there there is just there's a lot of sexuality in this movie and in the story built into the story um and the 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 book i think the novella um it's sexuality and control and power and it's and it's, it's an abuse of sexuality um that scene disturbed me to no end in the novella um and here when when the um the, the 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 costume was put on you know mckellen can't help but let out a little bit of sarcasm and snark and he never feels as much as a victim um as his novella counterpart does and there's just something missing from this scene and uh you know renfro does a good job at, at conveying the sick satisfaction that the that his character from the novella has um you know and there's gratification there all right there's a warped gratification that's a stand-in for a different kind of gratification, right? Um, but I, I just – the idea of, of Dusander being so at the mercy of this boy and, 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 and the, the warped power and, and the, the fact that to me it was a stand-in for abuse, that, that resonated a lot more um, in the novella than it did here. And even in this scene, Singer includes a line in which McKellen warns Todd not to play with fire. Um, you know, and, and this scene when he's marching in the kitchen and, you know, in the not in the novella, um, Todd thought of Fantasia with the broomsticks going out of control. Here it made me think of a humunculus, you know, that was growing independent of its creator. And just as it is in the novella, it, it certainly is here as well. It's that turning point. It's that shift in power. And, and we, we start to see that he, Todd, has woken up something that should have been left dormant. Now, Singer masterfully juxtaposes, juxtaposes two scenes against each other. And that's the dual impotencies of the two characters, right? Todd's impotence in the car with his girlfriend um, and Dusander's failure to kill a cat. Both are examples of the characters failing to accomplish their goal but speaks also to a hunger within both of them, a hunger that won't be quenched with a girl for Todd or a cat for Dusander. And likewise, Singer is effective at drawing out the scene in which Todd murders his first living thing, slowly bouncing the basketball, threatening the pigeon before ultimately taking its life. And then, and then Todd meets his mustachioed guidance counselor, played by David Schwimmer as only David Schwimmer can. Now, I remember when the movie came out, which was at, at the height of Friends, remember, just put that put that into a little bit of context, right? Um, people knew him as Ross Geller, and they just, just went to town on his performance in this movie. Um, they just dumped all over it. You know, he, you know, if this came out now, um, there would just be memes of, of uh, David Schwimmer as Ed French, the guidance counselor. Um, and I cannot fault him for this at all. I think he does a fine job. It's not stellar, but it's not atrocious by any means. You know, I, I think that what doesn't help things is that Brian Singer thought that David Schwimmer with a mustache was a good idea. Brian Singer, please note that David Schwimmer with a mustache is not a good idea. Um, but I mean, Schwimmer does a fine job. You know, I, I think that it was just... This with the pairing of, of, of friends, and I think that people just pictured, you know, Ross Geller in this role. Um, you know, 
that, that to me is it's not it's not a criticism. You know, I mean, he, I I think he acts like a guidance counselor. I I think that you know it's it's almost as if you know the guidance counselor you remember from your high school just accidentally stepped on set and they started filming. Um, he, it's a little bit more than convincing, right? It, it's it's a little bit a little too true to life. Um, and I I think that this is a part that's matched up perfectly with the 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 sort of strengths that David Schwimmer had, um, you know, utilized and 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 uh, embodied at his time, you know, during Friends. So I I can't I I cannot. Um, you know, fault him for anything in this movie. I, I know, I always, as I got into the the movie and I, I was gearing up to for this review and I hadn't seen this movie, you know, since it had first come out. I, I was kind of looking forward to cracking some jokes at 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 David Schwimmer's expense. Well, not as as expense, but just kind of making making you know this podcast a little light. But you know, especially because last week's was not light. But I, I remembered that backlash. I remembered people talking about it and making fun of him. And I just, I really don't see why. And I don't think that's necessarily fair to him. Because um, I, I, like I said, I mean, I think that he, he's playing a guidance counselor. And I think that he seems like a guidance counselor to me. Anyway, the scene itself is a turning point between the two characters. And that's the, that's the biggest takeaway here. Todd later confronts Dusander, you know, afterwards. And... McKellen is just reveling in it. You know, he loves it. Uh, he cannot suppress at all the constant smirking sneer that has wriggled its way upon his face. You know, because DeSander knows that he has taken control of this situation, forcing Todd into a public relationship between the two of them. And we later learn that DeSander enjoys playing dress-up by himself, you know, wearing Todd's Christmas present. And he spots a wino going through his garbage, and we get a sense of where this is going to go. Um, you know, I expect something to happen right away, but I'm wrong, because I expect a murder, and instead we get a studying montage. You know, and but here's the issue. It's well acted. It's well directed. The cinematography is great. Um, but we're an over an hour into this movie, and nothing has happened. And I'm sad to say that I, at this point, I the only thing I can think of was that this is a very boring movie. It's not bad. Like I said, well-directed, well-acted, great cinematography. Um, it's not bad, but somehow this is worse. Um, I think boring is worse than bad, you know? I mean, at least in some of the, the lesser Stephen adap- adaptations I reviewed, the, the directors took some chances here and there. Or there was some aspect that made it enjoyable to watch on some level. Even if they weren't good, they weren't boring, you know. And I, I just, as I'm watching, I was kind of drifting off here and there. Um, you know, I mean, I, I just feel like what was tense on the page is tedious on the screen. And I I, and I think that with, with all the talent on display, it's just it's too bad, you know. It, it's too bad. I, I just, I wanted more. or Maybe I expected more. I, I don't know. Um, but I, all I know is that during the movie, I took a break. <laughs> You know, so I could watch the latest trailer for Interstellar, um, and it gave me enough energy to go back to the rest of the movie. And I, I where I should should be riveted the entire time. I shouldn't um, need to to take some breaks and go back, because like I said, I know that Brian Singer is an incredible talent. I know that Ian McKellen is an incredible talent, but uh, something was just missing. Uh you know, and then 
McKellen, uh, he meets Elias Coteus, the, the homeless wino that we had seen just a few scenes before, who comes up to him and he offers uh, quote-unquote companionship for some money. Dusander brings him back to his house and after an eternity, and I, I swear, this scene goes on forever, um, of talking about how they won't let him get a job, uh, Dusander puts him out of his misery by jamming, it, by jamming a knife into his back. Uh the murder brings about a heart attack for Dusander, but he has enough strength to call Todd. But he, look, the scene, the scene itself, right, is is loaded with tension. Um, you, you know, you know, this is not going to end well for the the wino at all, at all. Um, it, and it's it's tense to it's it's very very tense to watch. Um, it's also loaded with um, sexuality, right? You know, from the abuse, from sexual abuse, not sexual, but. In, you want to take it as a metaphor um, between the two. Um, and there's the explicit line from Denker to Sander in which uh, earlier – look, okay, so I'm, I'm just kind of going all over the place. So think about this. The scene itself, right, the the, the wino, um, I don't know if, if, he's, if he's gay or if he thinks that Dusander's gay and thinks that there's a relationship between he and, um, and Todd. You know, I mean, I think that the the wino is is supposed to be uh, um, gay, and I think that you know, I mean, he he's got like a multicolored scarf on that I think that it's supposed to kind of point him in, in that direction, right? Um, now, in in the novel, I think that that was there there were some themes right between the 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 old man and the young boy, and of course it it wasn't explicitly homoerotic or, or homosexual I think that it was there was some suggestions right um, supposed to invoke some connotations but here I, I think that singer brings it really more to the forefront um, and I think that in the book at least my interpretation in the book it wasn't so much about um, like a relationship between the two or, or a statement on homosexuality I took it as a statement of abuse of sexual abuse um, but I think that Singer is playing more with sexuality and, um, you know, what that means here. I, I mean, I, I think that specifically Singer included a line where from uh, Dusander to Todd that they are, you know, uh, you know, I'm not effing each other, right? I was trying to find a way to not use the, <laughs> the F word because this is um, labeled under iTunes is not explicit, so I can't, I can't swear. So, um but they 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 are they're effing each other, right? So he says that. So that that line is explicitly put that these two characters are quote unquote in bed with each other, right? Um, and then the wino comes on to McKellen, believing he's gay, and it's not hard to imagine that Singer is um, using this right as um, a driving force to express the themes that are very present in this movie, um, from the symbolic emergence of Todd's sexuality maybe, to the, the connotations that come from the Nazis' viewpoints on, on homosexuality. You know, it is completely intertwined with the narrative, and I think um, that maybe this was the, the, uh, the, the, emotion, the emotional, um, I don't know, maybe leverage or, or truth that Singer decided that he was going to, to drive with here. Now, like I said, I don't know exactly what, Singer was trying to do. I don't know exactly what the screenwriter was trying to do. 
um, because I just kept thinking about what King did and what my interpretation was, was like I said, of, of the, the sexual abuse. Whereas here, I wasn't sure if there was a statement of, of Todd being living in the suburbs in, in a waspish environment. And I didn't know if it was a metaphor where he is, um, he's, closet, he's closeted gay and he doesn't know how to come out and he can't be true to himself. And when you're not true to yourself, I don't know if this is a metaphor for, you know, you become a monster because you're, you're not true to yourself. I, I didn't know if that was where it was going because if, if that's the argument you take, I don't think that it quite holds up. Um, so I, I couldn't really wrap my, like I said, uh, an analysis around a particular argument. Um, so instead I turned to Wikipedia and this is what Wikipedia says and, and I've thought about it a little bit and again, I, I don't know, I don't know, um, what, what Singer was trying to do as a whole. I, I think that there are, are pieces that he put together, but I don't know if those pieces form uh, a picture. But here is what Wikipedia says. Sadomasochism, homoeroticism, and homophobia are highlighted in Brian Singer's retelling of Stephen King's novella. The face of evil is represented in the film as Nazism, oft labeled as quintessentially innate and supernaturally crafty, but also in a more subterranean way, dangerously blurring the boundaries between homoeroticism and homosexuality. The Nazi monstrosity in apt pupil is structured through sexual abnormality, where a series of binary dichotomies are introduced, normal versus monstrous, heterosexual versus homosexual, and healthy versus sick. An additional dichotomy, victimizer, masculinized versus victim, feminized, reflects the film's hidden tensions in which Bowden and Dusander's roles of power are reversible. While the set of perversions that unfold in the novella are misogynistic, the film unfolds the set as, ambivalent, as ambivalently homoerotic and homophobic. The film removes the novella's misogyny and leaves intact the underlying homoeroticism of the central characters. The film also expounds the connection between homophobia and how male Holocaust victims are portrayed. The central characters of Todd Bowden and Kurt Dusander are on screen most of the time, and they are frequently framed in close proximity, intensifying a homoerotic intimacy punctuated by dread of contact with the monstrous. Homoeroticism in apt pupil is further demonstrated by the focus on Todd's body. In the opening scene in which Bowden, Bowden is in his bedroom during a stormy night, the ever-encroaching camera and the lighting fetishize Todd's youthful body, similar to the fetishism of the female body in films like Psycho. This depiction creates a dualism in which he is now simultaneously dangerous and endangered in his homophobic and homoerotic ties to Nazism. When Bowden gives Dusander a Yeses uniform to wear, and in which to march under Bowden's orders, the students' demands are more heightened in the film as more dominant and voyeuristic. Bowden tells Dusander, I tried to do this the nice way, but you don't want it, so fine, we'll do this the hard way. You will put this on because I want to see you in it, now move. The editing style of the Nazi march scene juxtaposes Dusander marching in the uniform and Bowden reacting to the march. Shots of Bowden's reactions are from a low angle which reflect the sexual difference between the characters. Bowden is masculinized as the bearer of the sexual gaze, and Dusander is feminized as the object of the gaze. 
The cutting between Bowden and Dusander corroborates a homoerotic arrangement of images which visualize the latent homoeroticism of the scene from the novella. When Dusander speeds up his march and Bowden tells him to stop, the sped-up shot reverse shot radically ruptures the structure of power where Bowden loses control of his sadistic power over Dusander. Um, so... I don't really know what Singer was trying to do, and I don't really know what Wikipedia just said, but I wanted to read it uh, because I didn't have any answers, and I, I don't really know what um, what the, 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 the real theme here um, is, what the message is, I guess. Um, and maybe because it's it's not as clear to me as it was in the novel why it doesn't ring as true um, in the movie, why it just doesn't kind of why there's not a life to it um but i don't know if if anyone has an answer or, or wants to make sense of this for me um please feel free to write in at stephen king at yahoo.com <laughs> uh anyway going back to the movie um remember where we had left off uh Tusander kills the um the wino right um and uh he has a heart attack so with the heart attack Tusander is discovered by the authorities and uh, the ending pretty much just plays straight out of the book. Dusander dies before the authorities can get a hold of him. Uh, and instead of sneaking into the drug closet, which he would never be able to do, uh, Singer has him push air into his IV, which is a horrible-looking way to go. And he dies. Um, great, great inclusion on Singer's part. Uh, but what's missing here are the dreams, which had haunted the character throughout the novella uh, that ultimately manifest uh, as an eternal hell from which he'll never wake. Um, and that's not, it's not anything that Singer could have done. It's just one of those things that, um, work, work better in a book. And then Schwimmer returns, right? Uh, mustache fuller, confident stronger, and he confronts Todd about Todd's lie. Todd threatens Schwimmer with an accusation that Schwimmer attempted to sexually assault him. And that's it. That's the end of the movie. You know, gone is the murder of French and the shootout at the turnpike. Instead is a more subtle conclusion in which, after all the back and forth of reversal of power, um, Todd, you know, he's firmly in control of his life and those around him. Just a budding sociopath ready to head into adulthood. Uh, so uh, I, I just want to uh, read from Wikipedia a little bit about Brian Singer's direction here. Um, because uh, Brian Singer, you know, he is just one of the, the hottest talents in, in Hollywood today. Um and he has a really good story here with, with, with Apt Pupil. So from Wikipedia, Brian Singer first read Apt Pupil when he was 19 years old, and when he became a director, he wanted to adapt the novella into a film. In 1995, Singer asked his friend and screenwriter Brandon Boyce to write a spec script adapting the novella. Boyce recalled the writing process. I thought it was a great stage play, actually. Two people pretty much in a house talking. My script was completely on spec, so if it didn't work out, at least I'd have a writing sample. When the uh, uh, original option to the novella expired in 95, Stephen King sued to get the rights back. Singer and Boyce then provided King a first draft to their script and a copy of Singer's film The Usual Suspects, which had yet to be publicly released. Impressed with Singer, King optioned the rights to the director for $1. Okay, and this is uh, what King calls a dollar baby. Which is an... By the way, just... I'm going to stop here. How awesome is that? That Stephen King... Um, will option his rights to his novellas, his books, and his stories um, to people if they pitch it well enough for a dollar. Like, that's incredible. And the fact that um, 
Brian Singler and, and this movie all came about from one dollar that that's insane that's insane and it just I think that it speaks volumes on who Stephen King is and I, I love the fact that I'm able to include this that he said here here is just give I will give you this if you give me one dollar I will give you a chance at taking a story that has my name on it you know my name that is going to go a long way in in getting your movie out there to the public and if this movie does well your name is going to get there out to the public um so i'm so glad i'm able to include this little anecdote in a story that is so so dark and you know as i've said time and time again he's an optimistic writer because i believe he sees the good in humanity and he doesn't just see the good in humanity stephen king lives the good in humanity this is an incredible um thing that he does optioning the rights for a dollar uh it's it's incredible so he did it for for brian singer you know arranging to be uh you know compensated you know later on when the film was released but Singer said of King's ultimate response to the film, despite some changes made to the source material, Stephen loved it. He seemed to think I captured the mood of the piece. The director appreciated being able to make a Stephen King horror film, but with less supernatural terror and more character-driven terror. Singer spoke of his goal. There had been a lot of fun horror movies like Nightmare on Elm Street and Scream, and I know what you did last summer. But I miss movies like The Shining, The Exorcist, and The Innocence by Jack Clayton. So this movie is sort of in the spirit um, of the real horror movie. It's a great ambition, and I, I, I love where he was going with that. Singer described the app pupil's premise as a study in cruelty. He prepared for the film by reading books like the 1996 history book Hitler's Willing Executioners, which confirmed his belief that Nazi war criminals felt guiltless and matter-of-fact about what they did. He referred to how young Tad Bowden's interactions with Nazi war criminal Kurt Dusander start to affect him. I like the idea of the infectious nature of evil, the notion that anyone has the capacity within them to be cruel if motivated properly. That's a scary concept. The, the director also perceived the film as not about the Holocaust, believing that the Nazi war criminal could have been replaced by one of Pol Pot's executioners or a mass murderer from Russia. It wasn't about fascism or national socialism. It was about cruelty and the ability to do awful deeds, to live with them and be empowered by them. <laughs> Singer said. To this end, the director sought to avoid overt use of swastikas and other Nazi symbols. He was also attracted to the film as an idea that the collective awfulness of this terrible thing that happened decades ago in Europe had somehow crept across the ocean and through time like a golem into this beautiful Southern California suburban neighborhood. So the only thing that we have left is the, um, the portion of the podcast where I like to uh, go head to head with the, the book or the movie, which, which, which works better. So, um, I guess let's just look at the, uh, at, um, Mr. French, Ed French, the guidance counselor, um, book versus movie. I, I would say that, uh, in a few years, um, if it's revisited, uh, David Schwimmer's glasses and mustache combination um, has the uh, potential of being an iconic image. So I'm going to go with, with David Schwimmer because that guy just looks the part. Um, and then let's look at um, the ending. I want to look at the ending um, in terms of the, the book versus the, the movie. I'm going to go with the book on this one because I just feel like there's more at stake. I feel like it is an ending 
uh, it resounds. The ending in this uh, in the movie is much more. Um, it's subtle. Um, it's a little bit more sinister, uh, but it 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 is not as powerful an ending as the novella. I think that the novella wins out on that one. It really shows the um, how far Todd has fallen as a human being and how his relationship with um, with Denker has has really really warped him. So I'm going to go with the um, with the ending of the novella on that one. Now Todd. Um, what what uh which version of todd is better the 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 novella or the movie well um again i'm going to go with the novella on this one because we really get into the mind of todd and he's he's much more nuanced in the novella than he is in the movie um brad renfro does an admirable job but i don't think that he's really able to bring him to life with with all of the different textures that that todd from the novella has from his uh his entitlement to his deep and dark twisted desires I think that on the page it comes out a lot more than it does on on the cinema so I'm going to go with the the novella on that one and that brings us really to to Denker Dusander Dusander uh, who who's who's a better representation the novella or Ian McKellen he of X-Men and Lord of the Rings he does a great performance. It's fantastic. Anytime he's on screen, he's magnetic. You can't turn your eyes away. And I really wanted to give it to him, but I really have to go with the novella on this one as well. The character of Dusander is just so, in many ways, similar to Todd in the fact that he's arrogant and controlling and manipulative, but vulnerable at the same time. Uh, we get into his head, and I think that what King is able to do with the nightmares and showing his nightmares, it, it shows uh, a side of him that we don't see in the movie. That, I don't want to say vulnerable side, but I've already said that. But the um, what he's afraid of, we don't see it as much in the, in the movie. So I'm going to go with the uh, the novella on that one. And ultimately, in the, the main event, the novel or the novella and and the movie i'm gonna go with the novella on this one i i think that the the movie is kind of boring nothing against brian singer he's definitely established himself as a tour de force as um of a director i'm a fan of his um you know from his work on on the usual suspects uh and of course all of the x-men movies i think that the the guy has a lot of talent but I just there's something lifeless about this 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 movie that I, I just really can't get behind. So I, I think that you know Stephen King wins out in in this round. So that's that's my I'm done I'm done talking about apt pupil and I'm glad to just wash my hands of it because it it is a it's a hard one it's a hard one to read it's a hard one to watch it, it does not really speak to the 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 thesis the, let me try that again. It doesn't speak to the thesis of the Stephen King podcast, which is that Stephen King is an optimistic writer and one that believes in in the best parts of humanity. Uh, here he flips it completely and shows the worst aspects of humanity. So it's uh, an exception to the rule. But stay tuned next week as I stick with different seasons. But this time I'm, I'm going to go into a little bit more lighthearted territory staying away from all this dark stuff and I'm reviewing a novella that 
works in tandem with what I reviewed a few weeks ago, Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption, and both the short story and the movie counterpart serve as an example that many of us give to non-Stephen King fans who tend to scoff at him as only a master and dabbler of horror. And when that happens, we're able to provide the following podcast from next week as an example to the contrary to say, hey, have you ever seen Stand By Me? And if you like it, then you like something by Stephen King. I'm not reviewing Stand By Me yet, but I am reviewing the novella from which it sprang and that is of course the body so make sure you stay tuned for that next week and in the meantime if you have any time on your hands feel free to to like the page on itunes or follow me on instagram or twitter or tumblr you can like us on um, facebook all found under stephen kingcast and as always i love getting into a dialogue so please write in at stephen kingcast at yahoo.com in the meantime like i said i'll see you next week same king time same king channel stephen kingcast